Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Here I am, your social worker with a microphone. Good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us in Voice America Variety. You can go to voiceamericavariety.com. I am Catherine Zox with my co-host, Lauren Beller-Blake. And you can get in touch with both of us if you want. I'm going to give you the guest call in number, 866-472-5787. That's 866-472-5787 if you want to talk to Lauren and me. And I can't imagine that you wouldn't want to. (laughs) Can you, Lauren? I don't know why not. Yeah, here we are. We have a lot to say. We've got two guests today, Lauren. Uh, You and I get a chance to talk before they do. But this month is uh, Sexual Assault Awareness and Child Abuse Prevention Month. So we have a guest who has uh, just finished a book called When the Piano Stops. It's her story of survival and healing from sexual abuse. It's quite a story, and it's inspiring, and it's something that I think listeners will be waiting to hear. Um, We also, the first guest is going to be the seven great authors of The Seven Great Prayers, and it was written by a husband and wife team, Paul and Tracy McManus. I'm not sure if both of them are going to be on the show, but anyway, The Seven Great Prayers, The Simple Power powerful way to change your life. This is right up your alley, actually. So um, I think you'll find them interesting. Anyway, they uh, wrote this book. Maybe I won't tell everybody. I'll wait till they get on the show. But initially they wrote this book, uh, just wrote these prayers, and I guess they put them on the Internet, and they got such a response. Uh, they self-published a book, and eventually this book became so popular that they were taken on by one of the major book publishing companies, this is the story behind the story, huh. and they've sold millions and millions of books, Vanguard Press. I love stories yeah. like that. Isn't it? So it's a major success story. That, I, I don't know how, I just, I, I love those sort of accidental, yeah. you know, yeah, those are great. Yeah, and you can have that today because of the Internet. It's and true. speaking of the Internet, Lauren, uh, it was just on CNN.com. All in the Facebook family, older generations joined social I networks. I saw that. Did you see it? Let's talk about plus. that. 50 plus, all, it's like the biggest wave joining the Facebook yet. Women 55 or older are the fastest growing age group on Facebook. That's interesting. Yeah, because it's reached the tipping point apparently. You know, I get, women, yeah. you know where it's, they didn't actually know what it was and their kids would tell them about it, but then it's like, okay, it, it just in your face. And they finally said, all right, so what is it? And, and the kids and even grandmothers got on. There's this one story. Did you see that? No, tell me. Well, this is a 56-year-old mother. She's from your part of the country, Houston, Texas. And she joined Facebook. She has five kids. This is from CNN.com. She has an 83-year-old mother, so that's the grandmother. And they're all on Facebook, and so it's a way for the grandmother to connect to her grandchildren and also to her own daughter and the whole family. So the whole family connects on Facebook. And it gives her an opportunity to know what her grandchildren are doing. And, I mean, it, it's, so it kind of it connects the generations. It, does, it totally does. Yeah. It absolutely does. I'm not using it. Like, I can see how it does it. I mean, I heard, I read somewhere or saw it on CNN that there, people are calling it their new living room. They're, you know, they're sharing photo albums together and they're doing it from afar, but they're, it's cool. Yeah, I think it's really cool, and I think that uh, this whole thing about keeping, because families don't live together anymore, you know, that's what people complain about. That's what you and I are always talking about. You know, we have to, you know, it takes a village, but we have to buy our villages. Yep. It's true. Which is true. I mean, 
help, if we need help, or whatever we need, it, there's nobody there. You have to, it has to be, we have to get it from outside sources, right? Well, but this way, this is like you could, you know, if your whole family's on Facebook, I gotta get my mother to get on Facebook. There you go. Yeah. Well, apparently. But you're not using it yet either, so you're on it, but you're not on it. I'm on all of these and I'm not using them. So, yeah, I'm using them, but I'm using them more from a business perspective than a personal perspective. Yes. And I, you know what's interesting? This is a really important question I think about Facebook. Is It's sort of the place, like, I don't want to have two separate accounts, one for personal, one for business. It's sort of the place where your life merges. Like, I'm finding I'm posting some pictures of my daughter, and I talk a little bit about some family, you know, travel here, going here, um, but I'm also posting about work stuff, too. So it's is that like good? Your, so you're saying that your work people, I mean the people that you do business with, are going to see your personal life as well yes. on Facebook? Yes, that's the thing. Is like I'm realizing that there's less lines. It's more. It's like the merged you. So how do you feel about that? Well, that's a great question. I think some people are keeping like having two totally separate accounts and keeping them really separate, and other people are letting it merge. You know, and it's interesting to watch some people do both in on one account, and some people aren't. See, I have a private, and this is one of the questions with older people. They say older people have a private fears about privacy, that whole privacy issue thing, which I have. A yes, you do. Issue. Yeah, we know. We all know that already we about you, and we all know that I don't because you ask me everything and I answer it. That's right. So <laughs> that's why we're a good team. Uh, but I'm going to share this with you. I think I'd ha- I have to. Have, if I'm going to two accounts, if I'm going to get into family and my mother, and 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 then also business, because I don't necess- want the business part of my life to be seen by the, by the family or the family seeing my... But know, why not? Because it, my life is not an open book. I don't feel comfortable. I feel I feel exposed. I feel really... I would feel exposed if I was but I think they help each other. I think it helps your business people get to know you personally and then it helps that whole... It helps them get a sense of who you are, especially in the businesses well, that we are in. You know, it's... I don't think it's a bad thing. It's not like I I'm do. doing anything. What about they see you as vulnerable? They see, let's say, they're that doing makes you more real. That makes them want to work with you even more. But maybe it doesn't. Maybe they say, okay, this, I know this about her and her relationship with her mother, and she's not whatever that is. Let's negative stuff or just stuff that happens in families. And so they say, well, maybe I don't want to do business with her. I think that the more real that people are the more, in this day and age. The more real a leader is, the more we are attracted to that leader. Like Barack Obama? Yes, like Barack Obama. But some people are afraid of that. I mean, that's a whole issue. You know, everybody talks about transparency, and they want to know, and they want to see him, and they want to know about what's happening in government. But there are a lot of people who it frightens them because they want to see him as Big Daddy, and they want to see Daddy. But that's not the true him. It may be the true him. No, see, it could be the true him. But they don't want to know everything about him. Just like, do you want to know everything about your parents? You don't know, I mean, want to know about their sex lives. You don't want to know about perhaps some of their... <laughs> do you? Do you? Well, they're not going to put that on Facebook. All right, that's the extreme. They're not going to talk about their sex life on Facebook. Most likely not. Okay, but take it down a couple notches. Take I think that that's, that makes people more more transparent and more appealing. So I thought your father says, well, he lost his job, or he's afraid that he's going to lose his job, or, you know, all, I mean. What if my husband had said that? I missed what you said. What did you say? I said your father, although. Oh, my father. No, he's retired. But I think that that's, 
I think that that's the kind of thing that people want to know about. I think that's the kind of thing that makes people say, oh, she's real and I see how she's handling it, or he's real and I see how he's handling it. That makes me want to actually do more work with that person. Yeah, want to hear a story about that? Apparently yeah, let's hear. Apparently somebody did do that, and they were talking back and forth, you know, on Facebook, and I forgot who they, you know, who they were, it was some family member, I guess, and talking about, well, they didn't, weren't sure they wanted to stay with their job, and they, they you know, what weren't not so happy with their boss or whatever. And so they were talking about work. I don't think they named the actual company, but their boss was listening. Of course. Well, that's not a smart thing to do. Called up and said, thank you very much and goodbye. <laughs> that's not a smart way to use Facebook, though. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not the time and place can, for that. But can't you get carried away? Like, you know when you get going? I mean, like, Look at us on the show. We'll talk, and do you sometimes get off and think, hmm, maybe I shouldn't have said that because we get comfortable. We get comfortable with each other, and I think the same thing happens on Facebook. I I don't know. I think that it's an opportunity to be your best self on Facebook, too. And when, it, I don't know, it's just, you know that you have an audience, so you have to be thoughtful about what you're saying. Speaking about audiences, did you see this, uh, this on uh, Susan Boyle, the one who did the singing from Les Mis? No, what about her? Oh, my God. You need to get online. <laughs> this is like the news of the day. This happened last night uh, on uh, British TV with, the, uh, you know, what's his name? Uh, uh, how do you pronounce his name? Cowell. Uh, the uh, uh, the show, Simon Cowell. Oh, yes. Oh, I did see this. Oh, yes, the um, the singer. The singer, Britain Scott. That was amazing. I sat there watching it. For anybody who hasn't seen it, and I can't imagine they haven't, because now she's gotten five It was on kids. CNN late last night. That's how I saw it. 47-year-old woman who we do have to say, and this is not fair, but, I mean, she looked kind of like somebody who would come to clean your house. I mean. Yeah, if, her, she, if someone would help her with a makeover, her song could be a best out, best hit. But, you know, her looks are going to get in the way. It's it's a, it's a hard one. That's a tough one. I, I was sitting there and my jaw was, I couldn't believe her voice. I was crying when she was singing. It was beautiful. 47-year-old, never been kissed, she said. Never married. That was married. she said? Oh. Yeah, but she'll be kissed from now. After after this, someone will want to kiss her. But she uh, she was uh, lives in her house that she grew up in with her cat. She's only sung at, like, church events and, and uh, karaoke and that kind of stuff. And then she went on the show, middle-aged volunteer church worker with the voice of an angel. And she did. I'm Literally listening. a voice of an angel. Did you cry? No, I didn't cry. I was in awe. I couldn't believe it. I cried. See, I'm, I'm softer than you are when it really gets <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. Tears are, I mean, really. And all my, my boys all emailed me. They say, did you see... Her, I mean, they were like, and I, of course, I had already seen it, but, I mean, this woman is, like, totally incredible. And she'll be fixed up. They'll put her in her clothes. It's amazing what they can do, makeup. Um, and she'll, I guess she hasn't won, but. No, not, no, no, she hasn't won at all. So we'll see. I mean, she's just runner-up. Or like, she's just part of the group now, right? She's part of the group, yeah. I never, I don't watch the show, though, to tell you the truth. I used to, you know. I don't watch it either. No, I used to watch it, but I don't watch it now. So, um. Anyway, but we'll watch. Well, that her. was interesting, and I wonder. I'm. We're all going to be curious where this one goes because I didn't see how they rated her or anything. Oh, and they stood up and they were crying, and they were. I mean, I, they had to give her the top numbers, whatever it was. Um, it was amazing. But it's just a great example of how we really let our judgment affect when it comes to someone's looks. How we absolutely judge, you know? Perfect example because oh. they were sitting there. Did you, did you see them? I mean, uh, you know the. 
the, the judges. The transformation on their faces. Mm-hmm. They had that little snicker look when she went up, 47 years old. She looked like she was, I mean, to be honest, she looks like she's 67 years yeah, old. Yeah, yeah. And they had this, like, very, um, look, kind of looking down at her, I would say. Kind of subtle when you see it, but obviously because of the way she looked. Uh, and then the minute they, she started singing, it was, oh, my God. Exactly. Yeah, so, you know, we're going to take a break, too. But our guests are ready, and we do have the husband and wife team, Paul McManus. Yes, the simple, powerful way to change your life, the seven great prayers for a lifetime of hope and blessings. And you are listening to Catherine Zox, Lauren Deller-Blake, and we're on VoiceAmericaVariety.com. Don't go away, because we'll all be back in a minute. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. If you want to put the pep back in your step, Chad Lafferty says just what you're looking for. Dance is life. Life is dance. It's only about dance. It's about moving through life with style, gaining awareness of the never-ending, ever-flowing movement that accompanies all of life's activities. Dance is life. Life is dance. Broadcast every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Radio Network. Be sure to tune in and tap into the limitless healing that dance can provide. Can't stop now. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. What are you going to do when that big emergency strikes? Do you know how to prepare? Do you know when? What if we provided you a source to learn from and plan as you go? Listen for The Road to Ready with your host, Rick Tobin. Rick will offer a weekly source of reliable information and resources. You'll hear about new ideas and innovation in emergency management. Best of all, you'll have the tools to get ready for any emergency in small bites each week. The Road to Ready is heard every Friday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to the Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Catherine Zox with my co-host, Lauren Beller-Blake, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com. And joining us in this half hour are Paul and Tracy McManus. They are author of the book. They are authors of the book, "The Simple, Powerful Way to Change Your Life: The Seven Great Prayers for a Lifetime of Hope and Blessings." Now, this powerful book guides you through seven simple—they're simple, but they're life-changing prayers. 
the prayers are for all people of all faith. And Paul and Tracy McManus, are, they show us in this book how to overcome life's challenges, get closer to God. Although you don't have to believe in God necessarily, as I understand it, to go through these seven great prayers and to get help and attract blessings into your life through the power of prayer. Welcome to the show, Paul and Tracy. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you for having us. Hi, Catherine and Lauren. Hello. Hello. The seven great prayers, they are inspiring. It's amazing. But you. But there's a whole backstory behind all of this. And so let's... let's you know, tell listeners, how did this all come about? Because, you you know, it obviously came from your own personal uh, issues, problems that you had, and you were going through a difficult time in your life, and then hence the book, et cetera. So take us back a little bit. Uh, well, Catherine and Lauren, um, we actually were going through some challenging times. And, you know, when you're going through challenging times, all you want is to really have hope and comfort and strength. So one sleepless night, Paul and I gave thanks for what we did have. We had our health, our family, we had each other. So we stopped focusing on, you know, what we were losing. And what were you losing? Well, we were losing our home, we were losing our savings, and um, we were actually um, going into debt with uh, our charge cards because we were trying to feed our family. We had lost our jobs. I'd worked for this company internationally, and through the uh, dot-com bust, uh, the company went bankrupt. And so, Paul, that's, that's what's happening today to, to millions of people. So, I mean, this is really timely, the same kind of thing. Right. Our, our hearts really go out to all these people that are, that, that are losing their jobs, and when we watch the news and seeing this all happening, uh, we just happened to go through it first years ago, and Tracy will continue, but we had lost everything. We had a nice home, you know, nice job, everything was great, and, you know, then I lost my job, and then Tracy had no job, and then, the you know, you start getting behind on your mortgage, and then you have problems even just getting grocery money for your kids, you know, and uh, it costs a lot of money just to maintain a, you know, maintain a regular living. And so we were losing, we did, we lost absolutely everything. And we were completely in fear, we were scared, we were alone. And then Tracy will share, you know, when we were, one night when we just... Yeah, we just, that one night we actually, you know, we had many sleepless nights, but this one night we both woke up and we looked at each other and we said, you know, we should give thanks for what we do have. You know, we have our health, our family, we had each other. And so as I said, we, we stopped focusing on what we were losing and we started focusing on what we had. And that's when the first prayer was born, which is, thank you, God. And we started saying that all the time. And it really um, made us feel better. And we started adding the other six prayers to our daily uh, routine, which gave us the strength and hope. But what makes your, because people are listening, they're thinking, okay, I go to church or I go to synagogue or wherever I go to pray. And what makes your book so inspiring and different. What's different about your prayers? Are the prayers different or the way you utilize them? Or because there's something special about it that makes it somewhat different than just opening up a prayer book and reading one yourself or even going to, uh, you know, as I say, go to going to, to church or synagogue. Right. Well, you know what? Um, that's what makes these prayers so special is because it's the simplicity. That's what makes them so powerful. Anyone can understand these prayers. Uh, each can actually be said um, in about less than five seconds, and they're so easy to use and easy to remember. So they give you hope and the ability to tap into all the blessings that surround you. When you, you know, like when you go to church or and you, you prayers, sometimes the prayers are, are, 
or memorized. And, you know, these are connect you. They're, they're affirmative. So it's all about being positive. Um, and they're short. Uh, when you're under crisis, be it financial issues, be it health concerns, relationship issues, you know, your mind just gets spinning out of control and you just have to change it. And so that's why, the, you know, the, the title of the book is The Simple, Powerful Way to Change Your Life. The first great prayer is, uh, one of the great prayers, the one we came up with first, was thank you, God. And then you start saying, thank you, God, for my family. Thank you, God, for my health. Um, in each, there's seven great prayers. And then following those, they, they kind of go in different avenues where uh, on themes, okay? Another great prayer is, I love you, God. So it's just putting you in a, in a state of love and happiness. So there are more, Paul, would you say, and Tracy, like affirmations. It's like a real positive. You're not kind of... Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, you're not praying for forgiveness or do something for me or that kind of stuff, but you are affirming the good stuff. Isn't that, that sounds like a major difference. And as you say, simple. You keep it simple. Right. You know, to me, it's, uh, I've studied self-development and I've studied religion and philosophy for decades and decades, almost read every book. And that's why they, um, you know, our publisher states that, you know, this book is for all faiths, for all people. You know, we're not trying to um, push any certain religion. These prayers are all about helping you connect with a higher power, the God as you understand God, and it's almost a mixing of uh, God with self-development. So it's, you know, that's what really makes this unique. It's, it's all about positive thinking, and, but not just you positive thinking, but connecting with this higher power that you know, we all are, be it if you go to a synagogue or a church or you don't even go to church. Um, but like you said, uh, Catherine and Lauren, it's, much of it is about positive affirmations, and there's great power with just affirming something in a positive state. Well, you did positive. Uh, let's talk about what you actually did, because I think that's a story also as well, I mean, besides the success of your book. But take us back, because you started, what did you do? You posted these prayers on the Internet, and, and then what happened? Because this, you didn't initially set out to write a book of the seven prayers, did you? No, not at all. Yes. Uh, in fact, Tracy and I wrote the original prayers, and we wrote them on an index card, <laughs> and we carried them in our pockets, and we, we just made a pact to each other that, you know, uh, the second you started thinking negative, just pull out the index card, look at the index card, read it, and pray those prayers. So I have limited knowledge about how to make a website, so I built a one-page website, and I just said, you know why don't I share these prayers? I'll post them on the web. Um, I put a little listing on Google, and it said the seven great prayers for, uh, pray these seven great prayers every day for an abundant and blessed life. And, you know, day one, a couple of people came by and downloaded them. Day two, ten more. And, you know, the power of the Internet, you know, as you know with your Internet talk radio show, it, it's global. And when I first posted this simple web page, I was kind of almost thinking that it's, oh, well, I'm just, helping people in America, next thing you know, people are downloading the prayers, sending it to their friends. We were getting emails from uh, Australia, Japan, Africa. In fact, there's one great story where, um, you know, oh, and you sign up and you get a prayer a day for seven days. And, again, keeping it simple, instead of giving you all seven at one day, we said, you know, just do this one prayer day one. Then we'll send you an email. Day two, we'll send you another prayer. And got, I received this email, or we received this email, from a gentleman that hiked 15 miles 
to an internet cafe deep in Africa. He didn't even have his own computer, but he had a uh, like a Hotmail account just to download the prayers. And, That's uh, amazing. But then, how did you respond to all this? I mean, you prepared. You write this one-page internet, you know, website, and then all of a sudden, you've got people from what? Hundred sixty-three countries, whatever it is, responding to you. Then what did you do? Well, you know, it was very overwhelming. I think first of all, we kind of stepped back. We shared it with our family. We had actually um, we had a map on the wall. We put fish pins in all the countries that we had uh, touched, and we shared it with our children. We were just so amazed and and just so humble. Uh, this was so humbling to have touched so many lives. But uh, Paul. So then we. So Trace and I sat down from the prayers, and we started uh, writing about our own story and shared how the, how these prayers actually just work in an everyday life. You know, we're not preachers. We're everyday people. We had jobs. We lost jobs. We were raising kids. And so we put in a, a simple 100-page book, went to the local Kinko's and made copies and said, hey, if you like the prayers, you know, maybe you'll want the book. And one of the ideas that we had was to record these prayers and we made a, went to a local radio shack, got an inexpensive microphone, recorded Tracy and my, myself praying these prayers with beautiful Baroque music behind it. And we said, hey, if you want the book and the CDs, you know, you can order it online. Well, you know, we'd go to Kinko's the first day and we copied five. Five copies shipped them out. You know, five became ten, ten became twenty, twenty became a hundred. And you now every day, you know, the Kinko's people would say, hey, Paul, how you doing? And we would literally take these books, we'd staple them, we'd put them in jiffy bags and send them across the U.S. internationally, and next thing you know, we'd shipped out a hundred, uh, over 60,000 copies That's to amazing. 163 countries. It was what? But amazing. the two of you were doing that? Uh, first of all, I'm thinking, what an amazing couple the two of you are. <laughs> Other story. That is. Yeah, I'm sure it is, and that's that's another show. But okay, so sixty thousand copies, and what happened? I mean, then. Well, we had this was actually a cute picture on the website of my youngest daughter or our youngest daughter, Katie, who would help us ship it. My brother Mark, he helped. Uh, Yeah, we had to get some help. It was definitely a family affair. Yeah. (laughs) And so we we just all get together, and you know, we had some temporary people helping us, and just. Did it? And then the, whole, the other part is just answering all the emails. We actually had a couple in uh, New Hampshire who had originally um, purchased the book, and they were so inspired and wanted to help. They actually started helping just answering the prayers, uh, yeah, answering emails. You know, for people not even buying, but they would, you know, we'd get emails saying, "Hey, I have a relationship issue. You know, how can I use the prayers for that? Um, I'm going under financial challenges. How can we use the prayers for that?" Um, well- Let's tell people how they, because we've got about a minute left, so I want to make sure that obviously they can go online. Uh, the seven great prayers.com, right? And it's seven, the number seven. Correct. Yeah, seven great prayers.com. You can buy the book, Vanguard Press. So I guess you guys are no longer going to Kinko's to. Right. <laughs> we're, you know, we're blessed to have a publisher. So the, yeah. the book is out in bookstores now, so you can go to your local uh, bookstore everywhere. Um, all across the U.S., so you can either go to the bookstore or come to our website, um, and we're happy just to keep sharing the message. Terrific. You guys are great. Paul and Tracy McManus, and the title of the book, again, is The Seven Great Prayers for a Lifetime of Hope and Blessings. Go to their website at uh, the com, and you can buy the book at bookstores everywhere. 
I, I don't have to wish you good luck. You've got to wish me good luck. <laughs> well, thank you, well, Catherine and Lauren, so much for having us. And bless all your listeners. There's a lot of tough things going out there, and people just need to pray and think positively. And, um, you know, if you can share these prayers with others, that would be great. You got that right. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Sox with Lauren Miller, Lake, and we'll be back in a minute. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Go inside the world of PR with PR Insider, hosted by public relations expert Maureen Kettis. Maureen will speak to the world's highest profile PR pros from the fields of marketing, advertising, and sales. And PR Insider will feature renowned members of the media as special guests. Maureen will give you a VIP access pass, including tips and tricks to take your business to the next level. PR Insider with Maureen Kettis, sponsored by Cision, us.cision.com. Listen every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Network. Is it really true that nearly half of all marriages end in divorce? Get the answers to this and other questions about relationships on Relationship Radio with Jim Duzak. The program's devoted to marriage, divorce, midlife dating, and men-women relationships in general. Jim and his guest experts will have plenty of information, insights, and advice for you, all as part of a lively and wide-ranging discussion about today's relationships. You can listen Friday afternoons at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern, for Relationship Radio with Jim Duzak on Voice America. Inside all of us lives a warrior. We win battles with our careers, our finances, our children, our pets. It's time that the warrior within wins the battles with our own being. Modern-day Renaissance man Ori Hoffmeckler dispels eating urban legends and fitness myths in Voice America Network's The Warrior Within, your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Ori sets the record straight and will help you become leaner and healthier for a lifetime. The Warrior Within broadcasts live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on The Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in for your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to the Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll free number is 866 472 5788. That number again is 866 472 5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone with my co host Lauren Beller Blake, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com, which is new. It used to be Voice America, so don't forget it's VoiceAmericaVariety.com when you go on the net to to look up our show. Anyway, we have, um, I, I don't know if many of you are aware of this, but April is Sexual Assault Awareness and Child Abuse Prevention Month. Uh, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services reports that 65 million, this is a terrible statistic, uh, 65 million Americans are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. And one of them is Catherine McCall. She's one of the survivors. And her inspiring story of healing is detailed in her book, When the Piano Stops. 
a memoir of healing from sexual abuse. And I am pleased, or, and Lauren and I are both pleased, to have her on the show this morning to talk about her journey, her book, and uh, her intimate journey, obviously, and her ability to, to heal uh, from this really horrendous experience. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Catherine. Thank you very much, Catherine. I very much appreciate you having me on. Yeah, this is obviously very timely because this is the month when, you know, we're making uh, listeners aware of uh, sexual assault, I mean, sexual assault awareness, child abuse, all of those things that a lot of us just don't want to talk about that kind of get swept under the rug, which is what happened, and as you describe in your book. Not only, you, you, let's start with, um, first of all, why did you write the book? I wrote the book for several reasons. One of them was I just felt compelled to. I felt like I had to. And under that was my um, deep gratitude, really, for what other survivors had written. I had read a lot of memoirs during my own recovery process. And I'm, I'm a family therapist myself. And so, you know, I had learned so much. I had a great education. And I learned from some of the clients that I worked with how hard it is for people to assign language to their experience and how profound the shame is. Um, When I got to a point in my own healing process of feeling no shame and very much feeling my voice getting stronger and stronger, I wanted to contribute something as my way of giving back. Okay. And, and, we, and I do want to say, because you were past vice president of the Georgia Association for Marriage and Family Therapy, so you are a, cl- a clinician now, live in Atlanta, Georgia. But, Catherine, take us back to your story. I mean, everybody's story yes. is different, but there are some things that are unique and other things that people can, who have been sexually abused can relate to. But you had a pretty, uh, you know, here you are, and I don't want to describe it because I want you to do that, but it's okay. uh, quite a story of this kind of, so-called perfect family, although no family is perfect, but it Mm -hmm. appeared that you were this, um, you know, very well-put-together family and that there wasn't any of this stuff going on. So take us back to your story. Well, my story, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and my father was a prominent physician. He was an ophthalmologist. He was actually an ophthalmologist for the Brooklyn Dodgers. We lived in a beautiful brownstone mansion, it's actually now a historic landmark in a beautiful section of Brooklyn. Um, we went to, you know, parochial schools. We had piano lessons, voice lessons, a lot of culture in our lives. But um, my father was an untreated manic depressive. He refused to have treatment for his mental illness. And his symptoms seemed to be compartmentalized with our family. He could succeed at work. People, his patients loved him. He would spend hours answering their questions. He was a very skilled surgeon. But when he came home, he would just um, do horrible things to all of us. And um, it was just the dichotomy was just incredible for us. It's amazing that he could separate himself emotionally and physically, I mean, just completely, almost like the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That yes, very much so. In fact, um, my older brother and I used to call him Dr. And Jekyll and Mr. Hyde behind his back. Um, but, Catherine, so he would come home. Here he is, the success. 
successful surgeon, his patients loved him. Mm-hmm. Of course, that puts you in a position who's going to believe you also if, if you're, you're, you know, accusing him of, of raping, you were being raped repeatedly. When was the, when did the, how old would you, how old were you when it first happened, when he first? Uh, he raped me for the first time when I was 10 years old. And my mother was in the hospital with pneumonia. And, um, you know, I think at that point that he was under so much stress that he split. I mean, I think it was in a psychotic episode. Uh, I don't know for sure, but um, that's the first time that he raped me. And, you know, I went off to school the next day um, not remembering what happened, but trying to dress up to look like Shirley Temple. I had long, straight hair in bangs and and braids, and uh, that day I tried to go to school making ringlets in my hair. And when I got to school, one of the nuns told me I looked like an idiot, and my mother would just be so embarrassed if she knew how I came to school. You know, if only that nun knew what we can know now about signs of abuse, she could have intervened at that point. Explain but she didn't. what that means, though. Okay, you, you, you came to school and you looked entirely different than you usually yeah. do. H- how is that a symptom? I mean... Well, I think if a child looks disheveled, and they usually don't look disheveled, something's happened to them. And it's important to ask them how they are, what's going on. Um, you know, anything out of the ordinary that a child displays in their play, in how they talk, or the fact that they don't talk. Um, in my case that day, my hair was a mess, and I, you know, it would have been a sign. Now, you said you couldn't remember it, or you, you absolutely could not remember what happened the night before, because I was going to ask you, were you terrified to go home again because your mom was still in the hospital, or did it just you just totally obliterated it from your consciousness? Yeah, it's interesting, because I remembered parts of it for a long time, not being raped. I remembered my mother being in the hospital. I remembered being scolded by the nun for my hair. I remembered that um, I began going to Mass every morning after that. Um, which was really my salvation. Um, Did you blame yourself? Did you think it was your fault that you had caused it, that you made your father or that you were responsible for him raping you? Not on a conscious level because at that point I didn't, I didn't know that I'd been raped. I didn't remember it. it. It totally was dissociated from me. I did, however, always feel responsible to keep him happy. Um, I always felt responsible if anyone in the family was upset about something. I felt like it was my fault. I felt like there was something about me, just my existence, that was extremely painful for my family. Um, I remembered the rape when I was around 40 years old and my mother was dying and um, I was overseeing her care. And my therapist, who... I had been in therapy with for, interestingly, 10 years, okay, so I was raped for the first time at 10. I was in therapy with Mary Ann, who's described a lot in the book, uh, for 10 years. At that point, she went into the hospital. Um, She got breast cancer, and she was in the hospital for a period of time, and within days, my father was in the hospital, my mother was in the hospital. So um, it was during that time that I had my first flashback. And that was of that rape. Now, do you think, or was your mother aware of what was going on and that she also, was she aware of what was going on? Well, that's a a good question. And, you know, I've often asked myself that. Um, Unfortunately, she was 
demented by the time I was remembering these things. And um, my sense of it is that she was aware on some level, but my mother became um, a really advanced alcoholic. My father, I remember that after she had come out of the hospital, my father would really encourage her to drink every night they had. Their cocktail hour would get longer and longer. My mother spent a lot of time drunk from, you know, during my adolescence. So, you know, on one level, I think she was putting her mind into oblivion because she couldn't tolerate knowing. So he was an enabler. He had control over, it sounds like, the whole... Very much so. I mean, he the, the boundaries of our family were very rigid, which is often true in families where there's sexual abuse. You know, we weren't allowed to... Um, to do a lot of things that other kids were allowed to do. Everything was very private. We were told not to tell people things that happened in the house. Um, you know, there's, in alcoholic families, there's usually three rules, you know, um, don't trust, don't feel, and don't talk. And in our family, those were rules that we were indoctrinated with constantly. Um, and what about your siblings? I mean, you you're, you spoke about your brother. How did he fit into all of this? Well, I have an older brother, and a, three years older than I, and a sister three years younger, and a brother six years younger. Um, my older brother, as is described in the book, was always kind of distant, and I felt more like the oldest, um, more connected to my sister and younger brother, and very connected to my youngest brother, who is who passed away. Um, when he was 39, um, we were always under a lot of stress. Uh, he did cruel things to them as well. What has been remarkable and really a continuing aspect of my healing has been my family's response to my book. I was very nervous writing it because, I, it, you know, it, it, there's a thin line between telling your story and violating other people's privacy. Yeah, that whole uh, issue of exposure. And yeah, constantly, and, and the feeling of, well, I didn't want to misinterpret them or tell their story. I needed to tell mine. And um, so that was very hard. And um, now with the book out, my sister particularly has been um, totally supportive of me. It has brought a healing in our relationship, and it has helped her because it put together pieces of her childhood that didn't make sense to her. And when I told her some of the things that I had put in the book that she didn't know about, um, she just really went into a process herself, I think, of you know, being able to um, affirm some of the things that she had intuitively You know, as you're talking, all I can think of, and I'm putting it in, I just have this kind of... Uh, thought that it's like it's all about transparency. <clears throat> you know, we're talking about transparency today, and yes. it's the same thing within the family. I mean, we have 30 seconds. We have to go to break, but if you could stay with us a couple minutes, we come back and just, sure. Yeah, uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. We're talking to Catherine McCall and Lauren Della Blake, my co-host, VoiceAmericaVariety.com. Don't go away. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! 
If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Total career success. What does it mean to you? Voice America presents a radio program dedicated to help you achieve your career goal. Even in times of economic uncertainty, you can achieve your financial goals. Whether you're a college grad, new in the working environment, or a top-level executive, you will benefit from the practical and proven advice on job search and career advancement. Join Ken and Cheryl Dawson every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, for Total Career Success on Voice America. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. Thanks for joining us. I'm Catherine Fox, your social worker with a microphone with my co-host, Lauren Beller-Blake, and we're on voiceamericavariety.com. And uh, we're talking to Catherine McCall, uh, author of When the Piano Stops, a memoir of healing from sexual abuse. And April is Sexual Assault Awareness and Child Abuse Prevention Month, so this is obviously very timely. Catherine was being raped repeatedly by her father and uh, starting at the age of 10. And by the age of 18, she didn't uh, know either. She had no idea. She had repressed every memory of abuse. Um, Twenty years later, married with two daughters of her own, Catherine's memories began to return. And and we've been talking about the book, her story. Um, And uh, when we took the break, I said to Catherine, um, you know, talk to us a little bit about the myth that people think that, well, if your father was a very respected, well-known surgeon, uh, came from a very upper middle class family. It doesn't happen in those kinds of families. Sexual abuse, child abuse—that stuff is just that. You know, those kinds of things just don't happen in well-educated uh, families such as yours. And uh, but it does happen, and it did happen to you. So I'd like to address that. Well, um, you know, I, I hope that part of what my book does is dispel that myth, because. It happens in every kind of family, you know. Um, uh, I think living in the strata of society that my parents lived in gave my father more power in many ways. Yeah, I mean, because you go to school and you want to tell somebody, and I kind of want to bring this up to, like, what can we do to help other people, which is obviously your book does just that, And uh, uh, but... What do you do? I mean, if you're, if, if there's a mother, and we have a lot of women listening, and they say, yes. what do they do? I mean, also the other thing is, here you have the husband who is 
not just a breadwinner, I mean, provides a certain kind of lifestyle that if you start, if you expose him to, you know, child abuse or to, to uh, uh, the fact that he's raping your daughter, you might, there's a whole monetary thing there. Who's going to take care of us? Who's going to take care of the family? Well, I think that's so insightful of you, Catherine, because I think that's the trap that my mother felt in. Um, you know, it was interesting when she was demented and dying in the nursing home. I went to visit her one day. This is in the book, and, and she calls out to me, help, help, somebody help. The fathers are having sex with the daughters, and there's nothing I can do about it. Wow. You know, uh, she had essentially lost her mind, but that's what she was screaming in the hall. And I think that that's what she felt. Who would have believed her? And how could she have survived with her children? You know, it was a very different time. It was in the 1950s. The world was a different place. Women's position in families and in the community, was a different place than it is now, too. We still have a long way to go, but uh, my mother suppressed so much of her, of herself and, of course, neglected herself and her children. And the issue of shame, I think, also comes into play as well, don't you? And do I do, I do. And in her situation, she, her, her mother wasn't too pleased about the person she was marrying. I think my mother's family suspected something strange about my father from the beginning. And, you know, as every daughter or many daughters have this tension with their mothers when they grow up and choose their path for their life, um, she wanted to prove to her family that she had made the right choice. And so she was in a bind there. I think one of the things that comes out as we're talking and also, and Lauren, what do you think? I, I mean, it's very complicated, this whole issue. It's very complex. Yes, it's not it is. not simple. It involves the whole family dynamics, you know, because sometimes people will say, oh, my gosh, it's just, you know, if you know your daughter's being abused, you're going to do something about it. But there's a lot, there's just, there's so many layers to this. To be There really to- are. And, and then there's the other, the psychological component of, you know, many people don't remember their abuse until later, or they don't remember. You know, I wonder sometimes, had my mother been sexually abused? You'll, as you know from the book, you know, my mother's family was funeral directors, and their home was adjacent to the church. And so Catholic priests were in and out a lot. And, boy, when the sexual abuse scandal in the Catholic church was, you know, rampant in the media, I said to my husband one day, you know, I wonder if my mother was sexually abused by a priest. That would make sense of her wow. being so blind to what was going on with us. I don't know if that happened to her. I have no way of knowing. But, you know, often, well, I guess that's another message of my book is that we women, even when we become mothers, and maybe even especially when we're mothers, we need to really take responsibility for who we are, what our symptoms are, where our pain is, and try to integrate that and heal and grow. Um, I, I, I think I, that's a good point, and, and, and I kind of would like to leave it on this one because I think that's, that's probably the key to the whole thing. You really have, as a parent, as a mother, you do have a responsibility to understand yourself and your motives and where you come from so that you can be a good parent, to your, not just to your daughters, to your sons as well. But that's, uh-huh. that's really true. That is a responsibility. Uh-huh. Um, I want everybody to know that the website, they can go to your website, is CatherineMcCall.com? Dot net. Dot net. Dot net. Dot net. And you can buy the book online, bookstores everywhere. Uh, it's just a wonderful 
really is a wonderful book, A Survivor's Story for Sexual Assault Awareness and Child Abuse Prevention Month. It's really, um, um, you are being responsible. I mean, you're doing a good, not just to your own family, but I think to the rest of the world. And it's, it's When the Piano Stops, A Memoir of Healing from Sexual Abuse. So, Thank you uh, so much, Catherine. Thank you. Take good oh, care. You too. Uh, Lauren, it was just a, um, it's, it's an amazing story, and I think that by writing this book, Catherine has just really done a service to the 65 million Americans who are survivors of childhood sexual abuse, and I have a feeling it's a lot more. Oh, my, I think you're probably right. Yeah, what a great, not a great story, what a hor- horrific story. Just yeah. Horrible. But and the, she's so brave to write about it. I know. Do you know anybody who has, I mean, I have learned of several stories of girlfriends over the years that really surprised me who shared their stories. I think it's I think it's more normal than not. You know what I yeah. mean? More normal than we know, but it's not like something we talk about. Nobody talks about it. And it's not necessarily it doesn't have to be as extreme as Catherine's story, like it was her father, but uh, you know, uncles, brothers, uh, and maybe not even necessarily an ongoing situation, you know, ongoing, but one or two incidents with, with the, particularly with with relatives who are not living in the house. Right. Yeah. And um, so I, I do think the 65 million is, is, is an It's got to be low. Those are like the, you know, it's sort of like alcoholics. We talked about this a couple months, a couple weeks ago. You know, that generally, you know, alcoholics, the numbers we know because they're not functioning, but what about all those that are functioning? Exactly. Same thing. Yeah. And I think that the last thing that Catherine said, because I want to do you, th- like being responsible as a, as a, I, mean, I never thought about it quite this way. Maybe I've just never defined it this way. But it is. It, if you really want to be a good mother, it, you really do have to. Go you have to look it. at it. You have to look at it. You have to. And I think probably all mothers should be in therapy. <laughs> it's true. There you go. There's a niche for you. Yes. Before you decide to have a child, I think that's. I agree with you 100. percent You should get into therapy. Get into counseling. Who are you? Why do you want a child? What are you know? What are your uh, what kind of mother do you expect to be? I mean, that's the most important decision you make in your life, and that. But most of us just do it, right? It, it's true. It's just, and but the, that tends to happen without people saying, "Oh, I'm going to take responsibility for cleaning up my life first. That's why I think that older parents have. Uh, there's a lot to say about being an older parent because you tend to. We tend to think about, "Am I am I able to do this?" Well, you question things, and you have a certain amount of experience. All that. That's true. But uh, but how many people really think about what kind of a parent am I going to be and how far have I come emotionally before I decide to raise this one child or, or more? I mean, as we said, you know, you've got to buy a house, you research the house, you research the market, you research what your assets are, all of that kind of stuff. But when you decide to have a kid, you just do it's it. It's true. And it's so, it, it makes sense why our world can be so dysfunctional because it's, we just keep repeating the, the dysfunction. Yeah, exactly. And like, from one generation to the next. That is one of the social work tenets. You know, if you don't resolve the problems in one generation, they just continue in the next generation. Whatever the problem is, it doesn't go away. Unless you really consciously, and even when you're conscious about it, trying to do it differently, I think it's really challenging to do it differently because you don't know a new way. I had lunch with a woman um, the other day, and last week, and she said to me, she comes from an alcoholic family. She says, my family, is a, everybody's addicted to something. She said, so I... Um, didn't want to have a baby, bring a baby into the world until it's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, didn't want to bring a baby into the world until I felt like I had that particular issue conquered. 
And on that note, goodbye. Have a great <laughs> week. And we'll and Catherine Sox, Lauren Beller Blake, VoiceAmericaVariety.com. We'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.